0: Peter Cradlin, live on Sky News Australia.
1: Thank you, Chris Kenny, and I'll second that farewell to Kerry, who's in the control booth, in my ear just as we speak. But I've got a big show for you tonight. Very packed program. Let's get straight into it. Sit tight. Here's what's coming up on the program tonight. So much for safe change. It's been revealed Anthony Albanese criticised capitalism and pushed hard for a wealth tax in his time as a New South Wales Labor official. Still his view? Well, that's one for the campaign trail, isn't it? Scott Morrison's signature religious discrimination bill has been shelved after five Liberal MPs crossed the floor to vote with Labor in the House of Representatives. The Director-General of ASIO lifts the lid on another disturbing case of foreign interference, this time an attempt to subvert our political system and an interview that will rock the Andrews government, I sit down with former Labor Minister, former power broker, Adam Somurek. You will not want to miss this.
2: But this is systematic corruption. Timesheets, six months of timesheets signed. So we collectively, systematically, stole, they say, 400,000. I reckon it's probably more than that. And you've got to call for what it is. We've effectively stole the 2014 state election.
1: But first, it's not unknown for the Parliament to sit through the night debating urgent bills, especially at the end of a year or near the end of a term. Still, the fact that the Morrison government has only just got around to introducing this week and now debating its religious freedom legislation in the dying days of this Parliament, despite this being a commitment, the Turnbull government... Key Election Pledge in 2019, and supposedly one of the PM's highest priorities, suggests more than a modicum of disorganisation. And the fact that five Liberal MPs crossed the floor to vote with the Labor Party for a crossbench amendment weeks out from an election suggests more than a modicum of internal division. And the fact, too, that the amended bill has now been shelved. That's right, shelved all for nothing because the government fears it's now making a bad situation worse, not better, suggests that it may have been a doomed exercise from the start. It's worth remembering the demand for this religious discrimination legislation only arose in and around the same-sex marriage debate, when religious schools and faith leaders fear they might be stopped from teaching their traditional view that marriage was between a man and a woman. This was only a problem because other human rights law, originally introduced as a shield to protect minorities from discrimination, started to be used as a sword to attack once standard views and practices that had gone out of fashion, or out of fashion for some. Under our long-established legal tradition, everything that was not specifically prohibited was permitted, meaning citizens have every right unfettered unless Parliament or the courts specifically constrain them. More recently, though, a system of positive rights has been grafted onto it, meaning you only have those rights that are given to you, something that the legal conservative in me has always fought against. It's one of the fundamental reasons, for example, why a Bill of Rights should be opposed. Almost everyone concedes, for instance, the existence of a principle of religious freedom. But what happens when rights rub up against each other? When my right to express a view rubs up against your right not to be offended? Or when the right of one school parent rubs up against another? This is the minefield that the government has got itself into, and that's what split the Liberals last night, because there's no agreement on whose rights come first. This was probably always a fight best avoided or tackled by repealing existing and problematic laws rather than adding more fuel to the right's fire. I've really seen an example where more laws, more complexity, more legislation fixes a difficult problem. Indeed, taking laws away and giving power back to people in what inevitably provides more protections and freedoms is what we're after. In any event, it's become a complete shambles, hasn't it, because of this last-minute rush and the disorganisation. And that's been one of the key failings of the Morrison government. It's become very presidential in the last couple of the years. If the PM isn't doing it, nothing much happens. And because the PM quite understandably has been preoccupied with the pandemic, everything else has ground to a halt. Not much else has been done. After three terms, the danger is that the government will simply ebb out of office. Now, this isn't inevitable. But time is running out to avoid that fate. The sooner the Prime Minister tells us exactly what he wants to do in the next term of government and why he's the only man for the job, the better his chances. All right, let's get to Canberra. Those headlines today, pretty critical news overnight. And again today in the Senate, Sky
3: News political reporter Andrew Cruthers is on standby. Good evening. Making news out of the Capitol today, the federal government has shelved its contentious religious discrimination bills. With just two Senate sitting days remaining, it's almost certain the key election promise won't be delivered before the next poll. After a marathon all night sitting, the bill passed the lower house. This bill
0: fulfils the commitment that we took to the Australian people at the last election.
3: But not without chaos for the coalition.
0: I'm very proud of what we've managed to achieve. The
3: Sex Discrimination Act, which the government promised to amend to prevent students being expelled based on their sexuality, wasn't enough to appease moderate MPs. Five Liberals crossing the floor to see the protections extended to transgender students.
2: I could not live with myself. You I didn't seek to address those issues.
3: The bills were set for the Senate today. The government will inevitably move amendments to try and revert the bill back to, to the government's position. But with New South Wales Senator you know Andrew Bragg's threat to you know cross the floor to protect you know transgender kids now, uh, and right. push back from Conservatives to drop debate altogether, the religious discrimination bill was put on ice. The knows have it. The government arguing it had received legal advice from the Solicitor-General that the amendments to the Sex Discrimination Act relating to transgender children could have unintended consequences.
1: Do you know what it has the effect of, Mr President? Potentially increasing the grounds
3: of discrimination against students. Australia's top spy agency has foiled a foreign government-led plot to interfere with the federal election campaign with warnings it could happen again. ASIO's boss Mike Burgess says the operation was designed to bankroll vulnerable political candidates, seeing sympathetic MPs elected to Parliament.
4: Secretly shaping the jurisdiction's political scene to the benefit of a foreign power was a key performance indicator. It was like a foreign interference startup.
3: The annual update also confirmed for the first time espionage and foreign interference are outpacing the threat from terror. The US Secretary of State has reflected on Australia's strong relationship with America ahead of diplomatic talks tomorrow. Anthony Blinken touching down in Melbourne ahead of the fourth Quad Minister's meeting between India, Japan, the United States and Australia. On the agenda, climate policy and the pandemic, including delivering COVID vaccines to Southeast
0: Asia. No one is safe until everyone is safe.
3: The visit comes amid heightened security concerns in the Indo-Pacific and the ongoing conflict in Ukraine. China and Russia have developed a new no-limits pact in their strongest assertion yet against the United States. Andrea Crothers, Sky News, Canberra.
1: I told her there was a lot on, didn't I? Let's get in it now and discuss it with the foreign editor of the Australian newspaper, Greg Sheridan, joining me now from Melbourne. Let's start, if we can, Greg, with the Religious Discrimination Bill announced, gosh, 2018 it was, by the Prime Minister alongside this Federal Integrity Commission. Both of them now will will not be met. The commitments won't be met before the election. What's the likely impact of that, do you think?
4: Well, Peter, I think this is a fantastic cock-up by the government, really. Um, I agree with you. It's very dubious whether you could craft meaningfully helpful legislation in this area. Now, the whole problem was that uh, other discrimination legislation was being used against religious people. Remember, the the Catholic Archbishop of Hobart put out a very mild, gentle, sweetly worded pamphlet defending the traditional vision of marriage, and he was hauled before the Discrimination Commission in Tasmania. So that was a real problem. There was a threat to religious freedom, instead of which the government has managed to contrive a debate which is all about the persecution of transgender kids in Christian schools. Now, I myself have been associated with a lot of Catholic and Christian schools. I've never ever in my life heard of a school persecuting a kid because of their mm-hmm. sexual identity or orientation or anything else. The question is whether the religious schools can proclaim their doctrine, you know, in Genesis, man, God created the man and woman or, or that marriage is between a man and a woman and uh, premarital sex of any kind is immoral, all, all this sort of stuff. So the government completely cocked up the debate. It looks like a shambles. I guess it can campaign in religious electorates and say Labor stopped us from giving you extra protections. But uh, this really is uh, just monumental incompetence on the part of the government. And finally, if they can't even sell it to their own backbenchers, mind you, I wish I could sell those backbenchers at their evaluation of themselves and buy them at my evaluation of them, but if they can't even sell this <laughs> legislation to their backbenchers, what do they think, you know, what do they think they're going to tell the rest of us? Spot on.
1: Spot on. And look, I want to concur your point about uh, schools, uh, my Catholic school, girls' school, a number of transgender kids, a number of gay kids. That's not the experience most people have, at least to Catholic schools and many Christian schools. I can't speak for other religions, but I know that firsthand. Let's go to this issue of ASIO. The head of ASIO, our, our spy, domestic spy agency, Mike Burgess, he delivered last night his annual threat assessment and revealed a disturbing incidence of foreign interference, this time an attempt to subvert our political system. Tell us more.
4: Well, this is a pretty disturbing um, report by Mike Burgess. I mean, it's reassuring in the sense that he caught them. The ABC is reporting that this was uh, a Russian attempt, uh, but certainly uh, the Chinese have made many, many attempts to subvert and interfere with our politics. This was a, a someone acting on behalf of a foreign power. As I say, the ABC identifies it as Russia. I don't have any independent information on that. Trying to recruit candidates and fund them who would serve the national interests of this foreign power. Well, I, I mean, one, one area where the Morrison government deserves full marks, so let me criticise them harshly over religious discrimination, their foreign interference legislation, their beefing up of the resources of ASIO and so on, uh, that's full marks to the Morrison government. And the other thing Burgess told us is that now espionage and interference by foreign governments... Uh, predominantly China and Russia, although we didn't name them, but but a lot mm. of foreign governments is now much greater than the total threat of terrorism uh, in ASIO's workload. So that's a sobering. That tells you how much activity um, is going on by foreign spy agencies inside Australia.
1: And yeah, it's not likely to, uh, to abate any time soon. Let's go to to the big visitor grace House shores today. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken. Touchdown in Melbourne ahead of tomorrow's Quad meeting. Uh, quad, of course, Australia, United States, India and Japan. Greg, you, you had the honour of interviewing Blinken this afternoon for The Australian. How did you find him? What did he tell you?
4: Look, he's a very impressive guy, as you'd expect. You don't get to be Secretary of State of the most powerful nation in the history of the world uh, without that. I think he's uh, pretty resolved about um, standing up to the China challenge. But let me give you a, uh, let me give you a scoop, Peter. Uh, Mr Blinken <laughs> told me that China now, in his view, aims to achieve world domination. It aims to dominate the world economically, militarily, politically and diplomatically. That it wants to uh, break apart the liberal world order that we've prospered under since World War II and impose its own world order, which would be characterised by illiberalism. So I'll have a full report about this in The Australian tomorrow, and there'll be some of it on our website tonight. But uh, I thought, you know, so Mr Blinken is a very, very sophisticated, erudite, uh, well-spoken man, but I thought this was pretty blunt speaking, and, uh, and that, uh, that was admirable. It's a very serious visit. He's out here for three days, which is an eternity in the life of a Secretary of State, in the middle of the Russia-Ukraine crisis. So I think he's sending clear messages Mm -hmm. about the importance of Australia, the importance of the Quad, and the importance of the China challenge in the Indo-Pacific.
1: That line about China, you know, it's been intimated behind closed doors, certainly in my time in meetings I sat in. But I can't recall it being spoken openly on the public record. Can you...?
4: No, so I, I, you know, I can't absolutely exhaustively say that he's never said this before, but I suspect, I suspect we may be a world scoop here. Uh, And this is a very dramatic moment because we've understood for a long time that China wants to dominate its own neighbourhood. Then we understood for a long time it wanted to dominate Southeast Asia. Then we understood for a long time it wanted to dominate the Indo-Pacific. Now the Americans have come to the assessment that China wants to dominate the world, like the Soviet Union did in the Cold War, but China is much more powerful than the Soviet Union was in the Cold War. The other assessment the Americans have come to, though Mr Blinken didn't um, say this to me, is that China is much more... Well, he did say this. China is much more aggressive than it used to be. And I believe the Americans Mm -hmm. have also come to the assessment, he didn't say this, that China is much more willing to embrace risk than it has been before. So you can't rely on it being risk-averse and cautious. Now, you can be sure that if he's saying this publicly, this is backed by an mm-hmm. absolute mountain of analysis and information and intelligence privately.
1: You bet. And I think you he's bet.
4: doing a service to the international debate by letting us know about it. All
1: right, well, we'll look forward to the Australian tomorrow. Greg Sheridan, as always, thank you for your time. Right now, I told you before, politicians up late line, I think they sat actually in the House of Reps till 5am this morning. So they would have been a bit tetchy today, wouldn't they? Not much sleep. But that, of course, doesn't excuse the alleged disgusting behaviour and slurs we witnessed this morning. Joining me now is Senator Amanda Stoker, who has accused a Labor media staffer of using a vile slur against her today. Senator Stoker... I wanted you on the show at the top of the show tonight because the Labor Party are quick to talk about workplace culture behaviour and there's been a lot made of, uh, you know, side eyes from certain Australians of the year towards the Prime Minister. But slurs and language like
5: this show, they've got a long way to go, haven't they? Look, they do. I'm a big girl. I can handle it if someone wants to use a, a couple of pretty choice swear words to describe me, even if it's not especially fair. But... Um, to be doing that in a way that um, is in the work environment of staff of this place when the Labor Party have just spent months going to town on the idea that um, they are somehow better than everybody else in the world when it comes to workplace culture is the height of hypocrisy. And so uh, plain and simple, just called it up for what it was and then got on with the job. Now, I just say to people at
1: home, I can't even use the language. Uh, it's words that are so offensive to a woman that I don't know many women who use this word at all, but it was thrown around at Senator Stoker. Did you get an apology?
5: No, of course not. I got a, um, a barely plausible um, denial. And uh, what's, what's most troubling about it is that uh, while one swear word was denied, the other swear word wasn't. There was implicit in that suggestion that either of them were fine. Um, And while we had um, inadvertently recorded um, through my press secretary a member of um, this Labor MP's staff um, speaking in a pretty disgusting fashion, there was no reprimand from his boss. There was no leadership from this um, so-called respected male colleague um, who might say, hey, that's not how we treat people in this place, or um, that's not the way that we act as professionals. Um, Instead, it was tolerated, implicitly endorsed, and uh, then defended publicly. And so I think that says a lot about the real Labor Party, um, the one that you get when you see the, the behaviour of the people rather than what goes out in the press releases.
1: Spot on. You've got them on tape, so they can't wriggle out of that one. Let's <laughs> go to the more substantive issue of religious discrimination because I know it's a big issue uh, in the communities that you're close to in Queensland. How do you feel about
5: this impasse in the Senate tonight? Oh, look, from a personal perspective, I'm pretty gutted. I've been working for years, literally years, um, to help people in our community broadly understand the kinds of discrimination that are being inflicted by those who use the weapons in the sex discrimination and other discrimination acts against people of faith. Uh, The best example came when Archbishop Porteus found himself hauled before a tribunal in Tasmania for politely and um, very gently stating um, the Catholic position on marriage as being between a man and a woman. Those kinds of situations show that there is a problem with the ability to tolerate differences of belief in this country. Now, you and I know, Peter, that's best solved by taking away the weapons that exist in other discrimination acts. But Mm -hmm. in circumstances where that wasn't achievable, we tried to level the playing field. But with the amendments that were passed in the wee hours of this morning, um, we were left as a government with no option but to pull the entire package, because the changes that were made would have actually exposed religious people to more discrimination, and would have made it um, so difficult for religious schools to operate according to their ethos, to teach the tenets of their faith, to be able to enforce standards of behaviour that reflect um, the tenets of that faith, and it would have made single sex and co-ed schools um, absolutely tangled up in difficulties associated um, with being forced to affirm those who um, mm-hmm. seek to identify as a gender other than which they're born. It's just not workable. Um, it wasn't legally sound. and so ultimately we had to make sure that we weren't making uh, a solution that was that was even worse. It's a shame, Senator
1: Stoker, thank you for your time. All right, after the break, that bombshell interview that I recorded this afternoon with Adam Somirek that will rock the Andrews government. A troubled young woman. Her evil parents.
4: We never had any issues between us.
1: Has justice been done? Uh, I'm in a prison. Join journalist Richard Gilliatt as he delves into one of Australia's most gripping cases. Shadow of Doubt, a new podcast investigation from The Australian. I cannot find one of these allegations that's possible. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. Well, Adam Soburek has labelled it one of the biggest political scandals in Victoria's history. During the 2014 state election, the Labor Party used hundreds of thousands of dollars of your money as taxpayers to pay parliamentary staff to campaign for them in marginal seats. The whole affair cost more than a million dollars, including Labor fighting right up to the High Court to try and keep the story out of the media. The Victorian ombudsman found the scheme broke all the parliamentary rules, but no charges have yet been laid. Yesterday, a twist no-one saw coming, a motion put forward by former Andrews Government Minister Adam Somurek to refer the red-shirt scandal to Victoria's corruption watchdog past the upper house daniel andrews has been requested by the media this week to comment on allegations made by mr Somurek and his motion to the parliament but has refused to answer questions or provide a response in a sky news exclusive i sat down with adam Somurek earlier today at his office in the victorian parliament what he told me about the red shirt scandal and premier daniel andrews government was nothing short of extraordinary. Adam Somerak, thank you for your time. Some will say, I think even the Premier, you're jilted, you're out for revenge, but it takes a lot of courage to refer not just your former party but your own conduct to the anti-corruption
2: watchdog. Why did you do it? This is serious business. It's not a game. The matters before IBAC at the moment will be dispatched. They're just small things to do with my electoral officers running errands. But this is systematic corruption. Timesheets, six months of timesheets or so, I can't remember how many, um, signed is systematic fraud. We had 25 MPs lent on, told that they weren't playing by, you know, they weren't team players if they didn't take, take part in this scheme, signing... Forged documents, essentially, handing over their staff to a campaign office to campaign for the Labor Party. So we collectively, systematically, stole. They say four hundred thousand. I reckon probably more than that. And you've got to call it for what it is. We effectively stole the two thousand and fourteen state election.
1: So this wasn't just a couple of rogue MPs. You're saying it was orchestrated. It was across the board. The premier says. He wasn't aware of it. How
2: plausible is that? Look, you know, um, I don't think anyone believes it. But and people like me and other MPs and the other twenty-four MPs will tell you too. But they can't tell you because they're still a part of the. Te- they're part of Andrews's team. Um, but I'm not, so um, I can say, I can tell the truth now. Uh, he was never meant to be uh, leader. He was a backroom boy. He was a head office official. He's a factional apparatchik. There was a split in 2008 where Shorten and Conroy did a deal with the left. Um, Tim Holding, who was seen to be a rising star and groomed to take over from Brax or Brumby. Um, all of a sudden, he was on the wrong side of a factional deal. So the factional deal when Brumby lost, was delivered. the, the leadership was delivered to Daniel Andrews.
1: Do you think Victorians know the truth of what really happened inside the Labor Party in well, that
2: campaign? They don't. Uh, and as I said, I'm an unusual circumstance here because I'm no longer in the party. Um, No-one else is going to say that, but they will have to in front of IBAC. Right? They'll be compelled to talk in front of IBAC. And this is the difference here. The Ombudsman you know, did a thorough investigation, but the problem is she had no coercive powers. And she couldn't subpoena documents. But IBAC can can do all of that.
1: You say that Labor MPs were instructed not to talk to the police.
2: Yes, we were were advised not to talk to the police. And when you're talking to an MP, you can't really instruct. But but we were advised strongly uh, to do a no comment. If they come and grab you, do a no comment interview.
1: But if, if there's nothing to see here, if people have done the right thing, why would you be scared about talking to the police?
2: That's my. That's that's always been my sort of. I'm not a lawyer, but that's 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 how I approach life. But um, the fact is, if you're in a collective and you're receiving advice from the lawyers of that collective, you need to stay close to that.
1: You say the buck should have stopped with Daniel Andrews, so why hasn't it?
2: I'm, look, I'm just. I'm, you know. Um, Probably because someone like me hasn't actually come out and explained the, the, the pressure. I'm no longer in the Labor Party, so I now can. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've got to say, it takes a special type of character not to stand up and say, look, it's not my MPs, that was me, I'm responsible. That is leadership. You wrote in The Herald Sun
1: yesterday that when he was opposition leader at this time, he pushed the boundaries absolutely pushed the boundaries beyond what was acceptable and that he compromised uh, MPs. That's a big claim. What evidence do you have?
2: Well, I spoke to him. (laughs) I spoke to him. Um, And I know other MPs did too.
1: Last night, you were able to convince a serving member of the Labor Party uh, to support your anti-corruption motion. How did you do that?
2: Oh, look, she's an intelligent woman. Um, She's made an assessment and decided to do the right thing.
1: She made the point, though, and I thought this was um, really strong in her statement that she issued, that she is a migrant to Australia. And she believed when she came here that no one was above the law.
2: Hmm.
1: She feels that there hasn't been justice served here, and that's why she supported you.
2: Yep. Um, And... Um, look, I haven't had a chance to really have an in-depth conversation with Kishala, but she's a woman of conviction, and she, you know, she's got a good sense of right and wrong, um, and I'm glad she did the right thing.
1: Do you believe the ombudsman, now that there's this referral from the parliament, uh, will take this further?
2: Well, the, the, this is a this is this is a thing. I think what first time around, uh, when the ombudsman got this inquiry, mm-hmm. um, if she had thought that it was there was reasonable grounds of corruption. Um, she would have, she had to go to IBAC, right? She probably initially thought, she probably didn't understand the scale of what she was dealing with because she treated it as a normal, um, uh, you know, breaching of entitlements, right? And so she went... So
1: they so contained to a couple of MPs as opposed them. to well, I think it the just board. grew
2: the more she looked at it. Because she tweeted, you know, she didn't report a tie back. Uh, she went and tested a jurisdiction with the Supreme Court when the uh, when the Andrews government reacted to it, and then the Andrews government sort of appealed it all the way to the High Court. And let's let's be clear here: um, I was supporting the Andrews government at that stage, barracking that we wouldn't have to go out and sort of uh, be answerable to the obvious sort of uh, corrupt behaviour that we all engaged in. Um, But um, at that stage, maybe she should have thought, well, I should now look at this as corrupt and go to IBAC. She didn't. Um, Then the the Andrews government then... um, Sought exclusive cognizance, which means that she can't look at the lower house because it was an upper house motion. Mm-hmm. At that point, maybe she should have then uh, decided that it we should go to IBAC. And then when we didn't talk to her, maybe she should have at that stage decided that it was corrupt and go, go to IBAC. She didn't do any of those. But what's interesting is with Operation Watts mm-hmm. and my um, staff members occasionally picking up envelopes during the day, mm-hmm. right, Um, or picking up a membership form of someone. Now, that's viewed as serious corruption. So that doesn't gel with me why something systematic and the biggest political scandal in Victoria's history, Mm. uh, which the Ombudsman called an artifice, um, why that doesn't classify as uh, serious corruption and running errands uh, randomly does. So I think the Ombudsman, if we send this inquiry back to the Ombudsman, I think she's had a reassessment of... What this means, I think she'll decide that it is corruption, and she'll probably want uh, coercive powers to be used so she can actually speak to the MPs.
1: When the Andrews government, though, after this report was provided, when they spent about a million dollars all the way to the High Court to stop the media reporting this ombudsman's report into the red shirt scandal, didn't that tell
2: you something? Well, yes. Well, we knew. I mean, us MPs, we were extremely concerned. We were very concerned. It was traumatic for us, I can tell you. Mm. There was a brave face put on, mm. but we were very concerned, and I can tell you what the MPs are thinking of Daniel and him not taking ownership of this. They're not happy at all.
1: So when someone heavies you, though, as an MP, and says, here is six months' worth of of timesheets for taxpayer funded staff, uh, please, mate, just, just sign them all off. You know that it's going to pay for campaign staff. You know that it's not inside the rules, surely. Didn't anyone push back?
2: Uh, I did. Um, in fact, what I said at IBAC is, I've got emails, and the commissioner said, "I oh, know we don't need to look at that." So, so, um, so, so I push back. Mm. I push back as much as I can. You've got the leader of the upper house, mm-hmm. John Lenders, uh, very close to Daniel Andrews, his right hand man, um, and uh, he, he was he was um, he would rock up to your door every day, um, saying, "Where are the forms? So I can fill it out." And you say, John. I said to him, John, I want Parliamentary Services. I want a letter from Parliamentary Services. Mm-hmm. Um, he would say, no, "I say is it being ticked off on?" And he would say, "Yes." Um, and it's like it's just like an extension of the pooling arrangements that we've always had.
1: You just said that John Lenders, who was the architect of uh, this model, mm. was his right hand man. What about the argument, perhaps, that Lenders was rogue, and Andrews didn't know?
2: Yeah, you can't have your right-hand man, especially someone like Daniel, who's a Stalinist, um, to, to, to have anyone going rogue on him from the leadership. There is absolutely no way. His Chief of Staff, his Deputy Chief of Staff, they all knew about it. Um, so everyone knows about it but him. How does that work? So that's why we need IBAC, right? We need IBAC to get people under oath. Right? That's the only way we're going to get to the bottom of this. This is not going to go away. Uh, the biggest political scandal in Victoria's history it doesn't just go away, especially when it flips an election. Yeah,
1: well, that's the point, isn't it? It's not, it's not just the $400,000 of staff wages, the million dollars or so spent all the way to the High Court to fight it. It's the fact that it turned the election result, yeah. many would argue, in 2014.
2: Well, the Labor Party were boasting about their new technique that won the election for them before the red shirt scandal, before it was uncovered.
1: Well, why is Daniel Andrews so powerful? I mean, I've been in politics uh, much of my adult life. I don't, I don't think I've come across uh, a political individual like him. You weren't just a minister at his government. You are a fellow power broker for many mm. years. Why is he so powerful?
2: I think he's as powerful as, as imposing as you allow him to be. If you've got power over Daniel Andrews, he's very agreeable, very cooperative very very cooperative and agreeable mm-hmm. but if he senses that weakness and he's, if he's got power over you it, it's um you watch out that's all i can say and at the moment uh he's got total domination of the party because the party doesn't exist polls if the polls are going good he will be an imposing figure if the polls are going bad you will see a different daniel andrews a much more humble daniel andrews and that reflects his caucus engagement as well he will be sitting having coffee with caucus members uh totally engaging with them open door but when the polls are going well he just doesn't want to know anyone
1: people say he he is motivated by the polls the polls determine what he does in victoria how true is that
2: he is he's a head office guy he loves the research he's driven by research
1: You've described him as dictatorial and dangerous. I've had conversations with a number of current serving Labor MPs who say the same thing, use those same words. Mm. They're not brave enough to go on the record. Why is he so ruthless?
2: Um... I think there is pathology there I really do but again as I say to you if he doesn't have the power of you mm. there is a different Daniel Andrews that can be quite engaging um, and he's pragmatic too he's really pragmatic he, he'll, I've beat him many times in factional dealings and he'll just rock up, t- dust himself off so oh, you won that one, let's go but he'll, he'll store it for revenge <laughs> when he can get the revenge so he's very Machiavellian in that respect um, but in terms of... But if he's got the power over you, if he feels confident, the polls are in his way, he will he will absolutely milk that for what it's worth. But there is another Daniel Andrews too. And people will see, if the poll, when the polls start going south, you will see the new Dan.
1: You've made the point in and around the hotel quarantine fiasco in Victoria and the 800 dead, that if they hadn't scrapped or if he hadn't scrapped proper processes, uh, legitimate caucus engagement... The cabinet government in Victoria, if they hadn't been pushed aside, there may well never have been those deaths. Talk to me about how he runs his government.
2: Well, no self-respecting cabinet minister would have walked into cabinet that proposal knowing the, the
1: proposal reputa- for private security. Private
2: security, knowing the knowing the um, knowing the reputation of the private uh, security industry. We had a report out not long before that. Mm-hmm. Uh, which showed that there were immense problems with, the, with that particular industry. So uh, no minister would have walked that proposal in. If they did, they would have been laughed out of Cabinet.
1: So why was he allowed to get away with scrapping Cabinet government? Where were the Cabinet ministers he, holding firm? He,
2: he rocked up one day and he said that um, well, in terms of uh, the crisis Cabinet, mm-hmm. just one day he, he came into Cabinet and said, this is what I've done. And people weren't happy, but um, people acquiesced. There was just... People weren't happy at all.
1: So you you tried, but, but you know, you say there's no-one really in the current system, the parties in administration, with the gravitas to speak truth there, to
2: power. There is no-one uh, in the Labor caucus at the moment that can tr- speak truth to him. Um, now that the party's been suspended, I don't think there is anyone that can um, that can hold him to account because uh, all he needs to do is speak to Albo to say, this is what I need as the Premier, and you'll get it done.
1: So if no-one can speak, speak frankly to him, if no-one can say, you know, no to Daniel Andrews, if there's no-one with any gravitas that he will listen to, how worrying is that for Victorians?
2: It's very worrying, because it's not just politically, it's obviously with the public service too. Um, you know, modern government is very, very complex... You need specialised skills, and he's a—he just goes with his gut. That's what happened with hotel quarantine. You don't need yes people beside you. You need people that are, you know, that are experienced, that are experts, um, and you've got to take expert advice.
1: You've seen the inside of the Labor machine. You've seen the inside of, of the Andrews government. Does the Premier
2: have too much power? Oh, my word, he does. My word, he does. Look. In our system, we don't—we lack the checks and balances. This is not a U.S. presidential system, right? Uh, the executive is drawn from the from the uh, from the legislature. The checks and balances aren't there. So when you've got an executive that dominates the legislature,
1: mm-hmm.
2: you've got a problem.
1: What What will happen if Anthony Albanese wins at the federal election? You've got two left Labour politicians. In power, then Daniel Andrews in Victoria, Anthony Albanese in Canberra. What happens then?
2: Uh, the right's in a lot of trouble. Um, I think the right won't come back for a very long time. I think the ALP's in a lot of problems. Um, I think the the party will move way to the left. They'll move to the, it will move to the left. I think electorally they won't be as viable.
1: And what does that mean for for Australians?
2: Well, it means that uh, the outer suburbs will be imposed in a city uh, left wing policy prescriptions. That's what it means.
1: This has been raised with me a, a number of times. People have concern about the integrity of institutions uh, in Victoria. Uh, they say that in a number of institutions, it should be a check and balance on uh, power in the parliament, power in the executive that there's not just Labor loyalists there, that there are loyalists to the
2: Premier. The manifestation Mm -hmm. of the Premier or the government putting mates or Labor Party activists loyal to the socialist left Mm -hmm. uh, into the departments and agencies is that when something different happens, you tend to think, well, I'm not sure that I trust that particular institution anymore, which I should not doubt, by the way, which should be beyond question.
1: Given what you've told me about Daniel Andrews' power, his, his factional control, if he wins the election in November, what does that look like for Victorians? Uh,
2: I think we've got a real problem on our hands. I think we've got a real problem on our hands. Um, I made a reference to Tammany Hall mm-hmm. yesterday. Mm-hmm. You know, he's introduced a spoil system basically. That was tried another time, another, uh, another jurisdiction, not another place. Explain that for people who don't understand Tammany well, Hall. Well, well, what it's about is this. And what you've got with Daniel Andrews is a patronage network. He's got his gut of the bureaucracy, his gut of the government um, instrumentalities. He's put loyalists in there. So that's the spoil system. We don't have a spoil system in the bureaucracy. The political appointments, which are, you know, integral part of all democracies in the world, that's different. They come and go with the politicians. But the bureaucracy is meant to be merit-based and totally objective. Mm-hmm. Give frank and fearless advice and there needs to be continuity in the bureaucracy. That corporate memory needs to be retained. But it's completely killed that corporate memory. It's put loyalists in there, mm-hmm. right? So that is the spoil system where a government comes in and completely guts the people that are meant to be giving him expert, frank and fearless, objective advice. Right? That it leads to corruption. That leads to um, loss of confidence you know, in, or loss of trust in the government, in the institutions. And that's, that's what happened um, in, in Tammany Hall in the US. Um, so there's a reason why the spoils system didn't work in the bureaucracy, because it led to corruption, Mm -hmm. that's where we're going right that's that's exactly where we're going if he's not stopped with a bit of luck this motion might sort of put it hold him up a little bit
1: the world's most lengthy lockdown six lockdowns crippling business particularly in the Melbourne CBD do you think the result might have been different if there'd been proper processes if there'd been a Cabinet Government.
2: Absolutely. Like I said to you, hotel quarantine would not have happened. It just would not have happened. A Minister would not have walked that through. You sit around the Cabinet table. um, What do you do? When when a proposal comes to you, it goes to all the other Ministers. Mm -hmm. Everyone has an input before it even gets to Cabinet. And you know, your your Department does, um, uh, Ministers do, they talk to each other, they ring each other and say, look, I'm not happy with this. What's this all about? Right? it would not have even got to cabinet. The proposal would not have even got to cabinet. But when you don't have collective decision-making, that means that 22 people around the cabinet table, that's 44 eyes. That's the ministerial advisers and the departments um, who look and scrutinise, scrutinise legislation, scrutinise policy documents. Well, when you don't have all that scrutiny, when you don't have that collective decision-making, you don't have that scrutiny. So what happens? mistakes are made and that's, that's something he doesn't understand
1: There you go, that is just the tip of the iceberg, that's all the lawyers would let me put to air tonight but that is explosive in itself I will come back to this issue, I said to you last year and the year before, I am not going to let it go Alright, after the break, that new spotlight today on a younger Albanese and his radical wealth tax. Is it really a safe pair of economic hands? I don't know, after the break All right, let's bring in my panel of freedom fighters from the Institute of Public Affairs, Gideon Rosner, and columnist for The Herald Sun, Caleb Bond. Gideon, you've been in and around this Victorian story for some time. There's a real sense that there's something rotten in Victoria. What now for the Premier after that motion's passed the Parliament?
0: Well, we have to take our chances and see what happens with uh, IBAC and see what happens with the Ombudsman. But, look, it's not looking good. Uh, but, you know, Peter, we've been here before. How many times have you and I sat here and, th- uh, and thought, well, this is the end of Dan Andrews, this is bridge too far? And look, being the Teflon man that he is, he manages to escape MacGyver-like in the nick of time. So, uh, look, I, I really do hope that uh, this thing gets some traction. But, uh, sadly, I'm, I'm, I'm not holding my breath at this point.
1: All right, I have to say I agree with you, but that's one of his you know, internal players coming clean, cleansing your soul, telling a bit of truth there. So let's hope that it has an impact. All right, let's go to the guy in Canberra, the left Labor guy in Canberra, uh, auditioning for the top job. It seems that history's caught up with Comrade Albanese, an exclusive in The Australian today from our colleague here at Sky, Sherry Markson. She revealed that during the 1991 ALP conference, Albanese introduced a radical resolution to create an inheritance tax, like a death tax, and sharply criticised capitalism and family wealth. He said it was a cause of social injustice. I tell you what, Caleb, what do you make of that? Can a leopard change his spots?
6: (laughs) Well, he claims he has. And of course, we had this at the last election where there were claims that there would be an inheritance tax and uh, Labor said outright that it wouldn't happen. But you have a situation where Anthony Albanese is a leader from the Labor left and you don't often have federal Labor leaders from the left. So he has to temper his own views to some degree in order to keep the position. He may well still believe this in a private capacity, but I would be extremely surprised, especially seeing what happened at the last election uh, with a bunch of economic policies, including you know negative gearing, et cetera, if this ever reared its head.
1: Are the coalition slow, do you think, uh, Gideon, to take the fight up to Labor and to frame Albanese? I mean, this is the first real salvo I've seen from a journalist, obviously, uh, not not the Liberal Party, Um, but, you know, we're 11 minutes to midnight.
0: Look, nobody hates inheritance taxes more than me. The idea of raiding dead people's estates is morally wrong. Uh, Always has been, always will be. But to be honest, Peter, look, this was 31 years ago. It was five years before Albanese was even in the parliament, for God's sake. If this is the best that the Coalition Tactics Unit can come up with, then Scott Morris is is in deep, deep trouble. But the other thing is, Peter... I don't believe Scott Morrison on these on these scare campaigns anymore because I remember clear as a bell, 2019 election Scott Morrison campaigned hammer and nails against Bill Shorten's radical energy policy, his radical climate target that would wreck the economy. Well, a couple of years later he gave us something that was much, much worse. I want to talk about uh, <laughs> what Scott Morrison has done to actually enable working people to build wealth themselves and pass on to their children. What's he done in the t- past two years? Jack up super- the superannuation guarantee? Uh, I think that They have to frame Albanese, but if they overeat the pudding, it will just belie the fact that they actually don't have a record to run on, so all they can do is smear the other bloke. I don't think that's good enough.
1: Pretty shrewd, pretty shrewd. Well, someone who's got a bit of fight, newly elected uh, senator, he's coming on a vacancy, Greg Mirabella, Victorian senator, ex-farmer, husband of Sophie Mirabella that people will remember. He went pretty hard last night in his maiden speech about Simon Holmes at court and this... uh, Voices Movement of Climate Independence. Have a listen.
4: I want to make a comment about the Voices candidates set to contest the federal election. They are all contesting only against coalition members. The notion that any of them would support the coalition is absurd.
6: They are, therefore, the Voices for Labor.
1: I tell you what, Caleb, this is where we need some fight, isn't it?
6: Indeed. Well, perhaps if there's ever anyone who should have been exposed to uh, an inheritance tax, it was Simon Holmes at court, because, of course, what he's trying to do uh, <laughs> is use his own money to buy some power in the political scene when it comes to renewable energy, because he is invested in it. He stands to gain from it. I mean, it's pretty clear what he is trying to do, and if we've got someone like Greg Mirabella who's willing to stand up to it, which the government so far really hasn't done much of, let's have more of it. Just
1: a quick comment, Gideon, I have to go early tonight, but, I mean, why isn't there a disclosure from all of these uh, people on the climate bandwagon when they're out there spruiking in the media, why don't they have to disclose their ownership of X and Y shares?
0: Well, the Commonwealth Electoral Act is its own beast. But all I'll say, look, it's good, for the, good on them for taking the fight up to these voices of people, but I really wish they could say this is bad because it'll cost jobs, it'll cost higher energy prices, it'll be bad for uh, the, the economy. Uh, all they can rely on is this ad, ad hominem stuff about uh, Porsches and trust funds. Uh, it's hard to argue against this stuff when they have, again, I make the point, I- implemented a policy that is strikingly similar to what these people want. Uh, really and truly, the, we need to get back to the issues here.
1: All right, well, we will next week. Apologies for the abbreviated chat tonight, gentlemen, with that long interview. Got to leave it there. I'm out of time. But Andrew Boltz, coming up after the break.
4: My name is Manny Carudis, and I'm a former New South Wales policeman turned investigative reporter with a passion for missing persons cases. I'm here to quickly tell you about our True Crime Australia podcast, The Missing. In this series, I look at old missing persons cases which have all gone cold in an attempt to try and uncover new information which could help see these missing people reunited with their loved ones or any form of clue that could bring these families closure. The Missing is available now wherever you get your podcasts and early and ad-free on Crimex Plus
2: on Apple Podcasts.